Please take your Bibles and join me in, again, the book of Hebrews today, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We are working our way past the midpoint of the book of Hebrews, and we are considering today uh, another marvelous chapter that has just untold applications for our hearts. I trust that uh, we will uh, sense that and apply them accordingly. You'll recall that uh, the book of Hebrews is written by a man that most Bible interpreters uh, was some sort of a pastor. Uh, we, we don't know who it was exactly. There are a number of theories. Uh, I won't belabor any of them. doesn't really matter. But we, don't, we do know that he speaks with a pastor's heart. And his concern is, in the entire book of Hebrews, is that people who have come to Christ have either become bored with Christ, which is unacceptable, or they are distracted from Christ, or worse, they are deceived from Christ to return to the old covenant, to the Judaic way of living. I remember an incident in our own church. We had a college student several years ago. I will name him. You can ask me privately, and I still won't tell you. Um, but he had gotten caught up in uh, a group that uh, styled itself as being sort of uh, new covenant people with an old covenant application or people that wanted to practice the old covenant practices. And so they had gotten involved with uh, various kinds of of Old Testament or what we might call Jewish practices and uh, saw those things as the best way to express faith. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't some cultural things that uh, are true in my worship, cultural things that might be true in, in any other culture around the world, but these were not cultural things. These were theological practices. And so uh, we spent a, a good number of weeks even uh, a handful of months counseling this young man uh, to, to turn away from those things as being necessary, that he had actually gotten caught up in a deception. Now, that's not your problem for the most part. I mean, I've run into that one time here in Clinton, Mississippi, so it's obviously not an ongoing issue or a regular problem with many people. But I will tell you that there are no end to so-called substitutes for Christ. So in the context of the book of Hebrews, we know what the substitute for Christ is. It's a reversion back to Old Testament practices. But the truth is, there are all kinds of voices in our culture today that want us to turn away from Christ and find ways to express our faith in other ways. And suggestion is that somehow by doing it this way, that you're either more righteous or more holy or actually converted. That in fact, Jesus is not enough. What you need is Jesus plus. Or maybe you need this minus Jesus. Both of those are hellish and both of those are heretical. None of those things add to the work of Christ. And the reason we know that is because the revelation of God in his word tells us that we don't need anything other than Christ. 
and that having Christ, we have not only the best, but we have all that God intends. From the beginning in the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us in the past, God has spoken to us in these ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in this way. Again, follow the the analogy, or if you will, the metaphor of maturing developmentally. You might speak to a baby in a certain way. In fact, virtually everybody does. It's weird. It's really weird. But people, you know, they just have to talk like that. Okay, it's my issue, not yours. Don't let it be yours. But anyway, when they move along, you talk to them differently. And the reason you do is because they understand differently, don't they? A six-year-old understands differently than a six-month-old. And a 16-year-old, hopefully, understands better than a six-year-old. And frankly, when they get to adulthood, we firmly expect them to understand differently, to put away childish things, and to embrace not only adult conversation, but adult ideas and adult understandings. We expect maturity. That's not unreasonable. It's actually a good thing when children become adults. So that said, we think of Christ in this way. Do you understand how God is working? Well, consider the way God has worked in the Bible. He started early, he laid a foundation, and he's built upon it. He's built upon it. He's built upon it, and he's built upon it. And in these last days, he has given you the adult explanation, the adult revelation. Now, you may want to revert back in your in your natural life. You may, you may long for the days when you were 8 or 10. I longed for those days many times when uh, life was pure, life was simple, life was uh, not burdensome. Just get outside, play, show up for supper. What's wrong with that? Great life. But that doesn't work beyond maybe age eight or nine. You've got to actually embrace responsibility and embrace obligation and embrace maturity. And that's what we're doing in the book of Hebrews. He's writing to these folks and he said, listen, by this time you should be adults, but instead I have to treat you as infants. You're not understanding what God is doing. You're not seeing the landscape of life the way God wants you. You, You're not understanding the nature of God. You're not understanding the nature of man, the nature of sin, the, the, the nature of heaven and hell and judgment. You don't understand grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you don't understand God's judgment against sin and punishment for those who reject Christ. You don't understand how all of that Old Testament stuff pointed to the future and that all of this was just precursor to that. And that, which is now this, is wonderful, it's glorious, it's beautiful. That in the fullness of time, God sent his only begotten son. Why? Because everybody before him was not his son. Everybody before him was a prophet, was a servant. Consider the parables of the New Testament. The man has a vineyard. He rents out the vineyard. He sends his servants to collect the, the proceeds from the vineyard. 
And they beat his servants. They beat his servants. They beat his servants. And finally he says, I will send my son. What does that parable mean? It means the Bible. It means that God has sent his servants. They've been named Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the rest. He sent his servants. But in these last days, he sent his son. Why? Because they'll respect his son. No, they won't. No, they didn't. And no, they don't. But we are those who do. And because we are those who respect his son, we need to understand what has Jesus done that Moses didn't do. And if Jesus has done more than Moses, why would you go back to Moses? In fact, if Jesus has done more than anyone else, then why would you go to anyone else? So, he has said in seven chapters that again and again and again. (laughs) Periodically, folks will say to me after I preach a long book like Hebrews, they'll say, you know, you're pretty much saying the same thing every week. Listen, I don't write this. I just preach it. All right. Do you know that all good preaching is just saying the same thing we've always said? Realize that? I've been a preacher. A guy asked me this week, how long have you been the senior pastor? I said, well, I don't know. Let me do, let me do the math. Okay, I did, did the math. A long time. Long time. And I thought about it. And I said, he said, well, what you preaching on? I said, same thing I've always preached on. Because that's all preachers do. I mean, I, this is the end of my material. <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. That's all you got. You say, well, I wish we had something else. Are you crazy? No, friend, you, you had not got to the bottom of this. Get busy with this. This will be, be plenty. Get, become a master of this, and you'll be fine. I, I promise you. His mercies are new every day, and his word becomes alive in our hearts in ways every day that never before. We've never seen that, never understood that, never connected that, never got that, never felt that. Uh, you don't need something else. You just need this. Invest in this. Our problem is not that the Bible's not enough. The problem is we have not looked at the Bible enough. So I commend to you the Bible. So here we come in Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus is the high priest of a much better covenant. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 8 and then think about it momentarily. Now the point at what we are saying is this. By the way, when he tells you this is my point, maybe you should read the next clause. You want to say, what is the point? He just told you. He's about to tell you what the point is. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, and he quotes Exodus 25, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old 
as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now quoting from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, I will not uh, belabor uh, my entire soliloquy last week on Melchizedek, but I will remind you that as he begins chapter 8, he wants you to have Melchizedek on your mind. Jesus is not a high priest like the high priest uh, that served Israel in the Old Covenant. And the reason is, is because he is a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? That means that he is the indestructible one. Just as Melchizedek has no beginning and no end in the Bible, Jesus comes without beginning and without end and serves as the indestructible one. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. So as a result, you can look to Jesus because he serves not an earthly tabernacle with structure, with texture, with color made for human receptors, but Jesus serves the true tent. The true tent, the tent that is in heaven. Jesus serves in the very throne room of God, not a copy of the throne room of God. Jesus is the true high priest, not a copy of the true high priest. So Jesus is the better high priest. And if you turn from Jesus to go back to the B team, my words, not God's. B team's not in the Bible. But if you go back to the copy, go back to the shadow, go back to the pencil drawing of the real thing, how, how does that benefit you? If you leave Jesus, you're going back to the JV. That's not going to win. That's not going to be productive in your life. So he makes these points, and we'll see them quickly in uh, chapter 8. There's much to say here. Notice in verse 1, Jesus ministers. He's a better high priest because he ministers through a finished sacrifice. You have to understand what he's saying here. Let's read it again. Here's the point. We have a better high priest, one who is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who is seated. Now, that's important. The word seated uh, is key. Why, Why is that important? Because if you're a high priest, if you're a priest, your job is not a sitting job. Your job is to get up and work. Your job is to receive animals, sacrifice animals, sprinkle blood, uh, pronounce prayers, pronounce blessings, quote scripture, and you do all of this in the temple or in the tabernacle prior. You do this in a standing position. No high priest is working if he's seated. Now, you can tell pastors, on the other hand, do plenty of sitting. You know that by the size of their girth. <laughs> All right? But so people, people, chief among them, my wife, reminds me that I have a sedentary job. Sedentary job. And I have to compensate for that by starving myself. It's not going well at all times. But I understand that if you're a high priest in the Old Testament, you don't have a sedentary job. If you're on the job, you're standing, you're working, you're moving around, you're receiving and giving the Word of God. But you'll note that Jesus is seated. Now, there's another reason why that word is key, because it harkens back to Psalm 110. Now, if you were here a week ago, you'll note that I mentioned that In chapter 7, he quotes Psalm 110 the fourth and fifth times in the book of Hebrews. I don't know who this man is who wrote Hebrews, but he loved Psalm 110. He loves it. And I would suggest to you it's one of the most ignored psalms in the contemporary church. And we ignore it to our peril. Because the first verse of Psalm 110 says... Sit here. My Lord said to my Lord, David writing, my Lord, God, said to my Lord, his son, Jesus, sit here at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. So who has the authority to sit at the right hand of the Father? According to Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, the Lord. Now, again, he's already said this. Jesus is superior to the angels. The angels don't sit at the right hand. Jesus is superior to Moses and all the other prophets. The prophets don't sit at the right hand. No one sits at the right hand. No earthly high priest sits at the right hand. No son of Levi is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Instead, the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father, and he alone. So you'll note, Jesus is a better high priest because he is seated in the place where the high priest would sit. He is seated in the place where the Son would sit. And the Son and the high priest are one in the same. Hmm. So Jesus ministers through a finished sacrifice because the word seated implies a third thing. The high priest never sat down until he was finished. So, friend, if you 
move away from Jesus. Or anybody you know moves away from Jesus. Understand the implications. Because in so doing, you are suggesting that what Jesus did when he said, it is finished, and then ascended to the Father to take his rightful seat, that when Jesus said, it is finished, according to you, he was wrong. I'd warn you against that level of arrogance. He wasn't wrong. He's not wrong. And he's not ever going to be wrong. It is finished. The work of the sacrifice is finished. Once and for all, Jesus gave himself. That is going to be the message of the next chapter. So I'll not belabor it more than that today. There's a second thing we see about his high priestly work. Verse 2, he not only ministers through a finished sacrifice, but he ministers in the true tabernacle. Notice verse 2, he is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The Lord set up, not man. And he takes the next three verses, 4, 5, and 6, And he explains uh, how the Old Testament had a tent. Now, I won't belabor this much, but here's the deal. The the covenant is ratified in Exodus 24. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Moses comes off the mountain, and the covenant is ratified in Exodus 24. Then in Exodus 25, God instructs Moses to build a tent, a tabernacle. And he says, I'm going to give you the dimensions, and I'm going to give you the furniture. And he said, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. Moses didn't write the the plans for the tabernacle. God did. Moses didn't design the furniture for the tabernacle. God did. So in Exodus 24, the very last verse, pardon me, Exodus 25, verse 40, he says, make sure you do it just like I told you. Follow the pattern that I gave you. Now, why is that important? Because you see, the tabernacle of Exodus 25 is a pointer. It is a foreshadowing. It is a pencil drawing of the real thing that is to come, the real thing that is ultimately to be revealed. It is not the real thing. It's a silhouette. It's a shadow. It's an opaque view. But it matters that the view looks like the real thing. And in this case, the tabernacle and its design with the three areas, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies, and the altar, and the altar of incense, and the camp, the lampstands, and so forth, all of these things matter because all of these things are representing that which is true in the heavens. Now step back with me for a moment. When the Bible uses the word true, it never means something you can touch. Never. When the Bible uses the word true, it means that which is eternal. And I can tell you this little stand here is pretty heavy, pretty sturdy. 
but I've got no confidence it's going to last in the judgment. One day, God's going to put an end to all this silliness, and this is not going to make it. So if you really got an affection for this thing, well, A, you've got a problem. B, it's not going to last long or anything else in this life. Think about it. God, God is troubled when his people put so much affection and so much energy in things that don't last. I'm not suggesting that we ought not to enjoy the things of this life. Clearly, we are. God has given us good gifts that we might enjoy them. Let's enjoy them, but let's don't idolize any of them. Let's, let's don't turn to them and build our lives around them and make them the focus of our lives and make them the source of our joy. The source of our joy is the one who gave us these gifts, not the gifts. So, Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle. What does that mean? It means the eternal tabernacle. It turns out when we come before the presence of God one day, face to face, that God actually occupies and tabernacles, lives, tents, takes up residence in something in heaven that has a similarity, at least, and a virtual similarity, dare we say even identical look to that which he commands in Exodus 25. So Jesus ministers not where the Levitical priest ministered. Remember, the high priest of, of the Old Testament ministered in a tabernacle, a tent that you could touch, or a temple that you could touch. They ministered in a room or a, an outer court and so forth. They ministered on earth. But Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle. Now, I'm telling you something, friends. If you're going to meet God, you're not permitted in the earthly temple of God. The high priest goes in there. The high priest goes in there one day a, week, a, 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 one day a year, excuse me, the day of atonement. That's, that's what he does. He goes in there one day a year, and he represents your case to God and asks for mercy, asks for forgiveness. But you'll remember that when Jesus died, the veil that separated the innermost holy place from the outer court is torn from top to bottom. God tore it. God opened the holy place to you, not on earth. So there's no value spiritually. There's no value for you to go to Jerusalem and try to somehow find the exact spot. This was the Holy of Holies, you know, whatever, whatever. Frankly, there's no value there, friend. But where is value? There is value in the true tabernacle. And there is one who's already there, who's gone before you to make sure you have access to that place. And now because of the authority of Jesus, let's call it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, you have authority in the company of God. Now you can call him Abba, Father. You can appeal to him as your father. You can appeal to him on the authority of your brother and his work, the finished work, the accomplished work of a high priest who, not, who didn't sacrifice the blood of animals, but sacrificed his own blood and is the indestructible high priest who cannot be removed from his seat, from his place before God. Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle. 
Thus, he is a better high priest than any earthly high priest. And then thirdly, quickly, notice in verse 6, Jesus mediates a better covenant. He ministers in a finished sacrifice in a true tabernacle, and he mediates a better covenant. Now, this, this gets thorny, if you will, for some people because they feel like anytime the Bible talks about the old covenant being obsolete, that somehow we are, we're being sacrilegious. Let's be careful with that. We're not saying the old covenant is not purposeful and doesn't have value. Neither are we saying that the old covenant was wrong. But I will tell you that the old covenant is not the better covenant. That is exactly what the Bible says. So Jesus doesn't mediate the old covenant. The old high priest, the Levitical high priest, the sons of Levi, the natural men who served in the old covenant, they mediate that covenant. The problem with that covenant is it didn't bring people to God. It it didn't keep people from God, but it didn't bring them to God. Let me step back with you and remind you what's going on. In Exodus 24, God initiates a covenant. And he says, this is my covenant. And I I promise to keep it. And I expect you to keep it. And if you don't keep it, then this is what's going to happen. And he pronounces a, a series of woes. Woe is you if you don't keep it. So this is the, it's a great warning. Here's the covenant. Keep it or else. That's what happens in Exodus. And then he says, when he comes to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law, the second telling of the Ten Commandments occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and Joshua ultimately is given the mantra and so forth. So Moses has his second telling of the law because there's been a 40-year gap between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. There are people who have wandered in the wilderness and died, so it's a new generation, got to tell it again. So he tells it again in Deuteronomy 5, and he says, you're going to go in the promised land, and you're going to take over cities that you did not build. You're going to drink from wells you did not dig, and you're going to move into houses that you did not own, and you're going to acquire livestock that you did not propagate in your own fields. That's going to be my gift to you, and I expect you to be obedient. But then he says in Deuteronomy 6, 7, but you won't. You won't. Now, some folks want to explain that as just simply God's foreknowledge. I think there's more to it than that. God knows the future, so therefore God knew that they wouldn't. Well, okay, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. It's not all the truth. They won't because they can't. Because, you see, you can't make a law. You can't make a law. I'm going to make a law that every single stand that sits on the platform has to be black. That's a law. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make a law. Now, what happens next week if Michael decides to bring in a brown stand? Well, first of all, he's going to make me mad, right? Now, this is an illustration, by the way, okay? For those of you who can't handle illustrations, this is, a, this is an illustration, a silly illustration to make a point. If I make a law that all stands have to be black and Michael brings in a brown one, he is now in violation of the law because you see... The law has no power to make Michael obey. 
Never has. It can't. There's no power latent within the law. People, people say all the time, we need a law. People say today, we ought to have a law about masks. <laughs> Good luck with that one. Do you think there's any power in such a law to make people obey? No. No, there's enough sin in anybody, including those of you who like the idea of laws for masks, there's enough sin in anybody that you don't like being told what to do about pretty much anything. You don't like your husband telling you what to do. You don't like your wife telling you what to do. You don't like your parents telling you what to do. You don't like your friends telling you what to do. You don't like your government telling you what to do. You don't like your church telling you what to do. You don't like your God telling you what to do. So, that's the problem with the old covenant. It's got teeth, but it's got no power to keep you away from the teeth. So, enter Jesus. What's the fix, the solution? I'll tell you what. During the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, God has sent his people into exile. Remember what's going on. They're in exile, they're in Babylon. His people, they've experienced his great judgment. They've lost their, hand, their houses, they've lost their lands. The very houses that God gave them in Joshua, he's taken away from them in, uh, in Jeremiah because they are disobedient, because they don't keep the covenant, because they, they had this great covenant, great covenant that had such potential, except it only accomplished one thing. It brought down the hammer. The covenant of the old covenant has the power to kill, but it does not have the power to get li give life. Not because the covenant is wrong, but because the people need more than merely externals. They need something from within them not without them. That's our problem, friends. We must be born again. You must be born again. That's why Jesus is incredulous with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus says, how can I re-enter my mother's womb? Jesus says, hello, you're a teacher of the Jews, and you don't get it. If you had been there, you would have said, Nicodemus, cheat. Read Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah told us there's going to be a new day. And it's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new power. And the power is going to come from within. Have you seen that internet picture of a line of German shepherds sitting at parade rest? I must be 25 German Shepherd dogs. And a cat is walking in front of me. And all these German Shepherds are sitting there. None of them are paying a bit of attention to that cat. You say, well, dogs just chase cats. Now, I know several of you have dogs who love your cats. Okay, I don't want to hear that story, all right? I know it exists. I know y'all have great, great cats and great dogs, all that. But it's an amazing thing because... It seems innate. It seems normal. It seems natural that dogs don't like cats and dogs will chase cats. And that who is this cat that would walk in front of 25 German shepherds? But the point of the deal is that these German shepherds are so well trained that inside of them they know what is right and they know what they're supposed to do. And that cat is to be ignored. 
Do you realize, friend, that sin is so latent within you? Sin is so resident within you that you may once or twice, or dare I say even many times, ignore that cat. But in due time, given enough time, sin will boil over in your life unless you have something to change your heart. Sin will so destroy you. Sin will so condemn you. Sin will so command your life that you will sense that you have no control. Because in fact, you don't. But the Bible tells us that God is going to send a new high priest to mediate a better covenant that is going to be written on the hearts of man and that God is going to change the heart of man so that no matter how many times sin parades in front of you, you will ignore it. Hmm. How can that be? How can that be? Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant because it is the new covenant. He is the mediator of a better priesthood, a different priesthood, because he mediates an entirely different sacrifice, which we shall see next week and the week after. The new covenant will do what the old covenant could not do. It turns out that Israel's hope is not in Israel, but in God. We learn this in Ezekiel chapter 36. Hear these words as Ezekiel prophesied, even as Jeremiah did. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit. That's why Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is so critical. Jesus says, it's better for you. He tells them this in John 14. It is better for you that I leave. Hello, Jesus, Jesus, it is not better that you leave. You must stay here. You must stay here. Jesus said, no, it's better. It's better if I go. How could it be better? Because God's going to send his spirit, and his spirit is not going to be resident in only one part of the world, even as Jesus' life resident in only one part of the world. But Jesus' spirit is going to come to indwell his people throughout the entire world. And he's going to command this body, this army, this this group of his own people. Consider again Jesus, uh, rather the writer of Hebrews' words in Hebrews 7, 22. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor. How do you guarantee a better covenant? It has to be an eternal covenant. It has to be a covenant that is dependent upon the work of God, the Spirit of God. Who's going to guarantee our obedience? Who's going to guarantee our holiness? It's not me. It's not my flesh. I can't tell you today and draw a line in the sand. Listen, on the strength of Greg Belser, I'm never going to sin again. But on the strength of Almighty God, I pray that God will help me to stay away from sin, to, to refrain from sin, to turn aside from sin, to sit there in the face of temptation, and to say no, no, no. This is the power of God in Jesus. He is the guarantor of a better covenant, and he is the only hope for our eternal life. The only hope. 
Now, what's the application for all of this? Just simply this. If today you need help and you're a Christian, I would simply encourage you to appeal to the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8 tells us that he is the one who makes intercession for us. The role of the high priest is to stand between us and our God, and you have such a high priest. Call out to him that he may be an advocate for you. If you need help with sin, if you need help extending grace, if you need help with kindness and patience, long-suffering, if you need help with turning the other cheek or going the extra mile, if you need help with loving your enemies, and who doesn't? then why do you not pray? Pray. Pray to the one who actually is your advocate. Pray to the one who, by his spirit, has placed his advocate in you, his counselor, his comforter. Look to the word of God. Trust God. Call out to God. God is the giver and dispenser of grace. You need grace. You don't need more law. You don't need more rules. You don't need more human power. You don't need more bootstrap work. You need more grace. Come to the end of yourself and cry out to God. I'll remind you of this in closing. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took his disciples and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. You all know that. And the scripture says that Jesus left his disciples and he went a little further to pray. Now what's about to happen within the hour, perhaps certainly within two, is that Judas is going to steal away and bring the chief priests and the soldiers and they're going to arrest Jesus. That's going to happen within the hour. And Jesus goes a little farther to pray by himself. And the scripture says that he prayed so fervently that blood burst through his forehead. I remind you, friends, flesh is weak and you are weak and what you need is not going to be ginned up on this world it's not going to be mind over matter it's not going to be turning over a new leaf it's not going to be merely trying harder doing more, sacrificing more. Those things may happen, but they're not going to happen until something drives them, until something causes them, until something within you makes that happen. We need a change on the inside. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, understand this, you don't have what God requires. But if you do have Christ as Savior, understand that you have an advocate before the Father who sits at his right hand, waiting, looking for you to cry out to him. He cried out in his time of need. How much weaker are you than him? How much more do we need to cry out to God in our time of need? Friend, 
We need to lean not on our understanding, but look to the one who has strength and power that we don't know. (laughs) Yes, friend. God intends our lives to be his. And he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, beginning with his own spirit and his own son seated at his right hand. Look to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed to call you Father and to look to Jesus, our Savior, how we rejoice in your continued mercies, and we pray for your kindness toward us in the days to come. As we reflect upon Hebrews 8, I thank you, Lord, that as Jeremiah prophesied, as Ezekiel prophesied, there would be a new covenant, a new spirit, and that day has come in the person of Christ. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant because it is built upon better promises, the promise of Jeremiah 31. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us, giving us grace. Thank you for loving us to the end. It is finished. Glory, glory to Jesus. Care for us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.